Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. That's the text, the primary text we're going to be in this morning. Um, And while you turn there, the title of today's sermon, as you see on the screen here, is Rebellious Kids, Perfect Father. So, you know, thinking back through as as I prepared for this sermon, you know, it really just made me very, very thankful, right, that we have a loving and perfect Heavenly Father that perfectly watches over us every single day. Because I don't know about you, but for the fathers in the room, I mean, you either have a father or you are a father or both, I guess. Um, You know, it's one of the hardest things, really, I believe, being a godly father is the hardest thing um, that I could possibly do in this life. And maybe one of the hardest things that that is out there, period, with maybe the exception of being uh, a godly and uh, loving mother. Just ask on me. She has to deal with myself and our other kids running around. But I think, you know, so as I studied for the sermon, I thought back through what I put my own parents through um, as I was growing up. And then I see what lies in store for me, and I'm very thankful for it over uh, the rest of my life with, uh, with my wonderful kids that I have. But it also gives me pause to contemplate and even to fear sometimes, right? Because I know the evil that lies in my own heart. I know what I put my own parents through growing up, and I see that same kind of heart in my own children. The heart that looks at authority, right, and says, you know, you say that I should obey you, but I know better. You say that this is the right thing to do, but I want to do things my own way. And then I also think about how, as a parent, I often get angry. I think of sometime, how sometimes, you know, this, this anger is righteous, right? But often it isn't. I think to myself, I can drive out that disobedient spirit. I can conquer that rebel, rebellion. If only I'm consistent, if I try to show love, but, it, but at the same time, if I'm firm or even stern when needed. But I also continue to see that pattern time and time again. I'll give clear instruction, right? to the kids. I'll explain that the reason for that instruction and that discipline is a desire through a desire for my children to be loving followers of God, committed to glorifying Him and to showing Christ's love to all around them. But I still see that same pattern creep back up and oftentimes dash out. And I know, like I said, I know I've seen that pattern before, right? I see it because it's in my own life. And it often comes up and is most evident when I'm disappointing the kids, sometimes out of anger, and I can see the exact parallel in my own life, right? I see that God's continually laid out his commandments in front of me and tells me time and time again, this is the right thing to do. This is how you should love me. This is how you should love the world. And, you do, and I'm not following through. So it convicted me as I was studying. But it also made me very, very thankful, like I said at the beginning, because um, we have a merciful and loving Heavenly Father that, doesn't, that never, in fact, reacts in the unhealthy or sinful way that we as earthly parents and earthly fathers do. So this morning, as we go through Exodus 32, we're going to see a picture, right, of the children of Israel rebelling against their Heavenly Father. And I hope that through, through this morning, through this message, you can see that same parallel in our own lives. And you can place yourselves in that same exact position as the Israelites. So the main point of today's message is, rebellion deserves wrath, but Christ atones. 
Rebellion deserves wrath, but Christ atones. So let's go ahead and start reading from Exodus 32. We're picking up right where we left off last week and where we've been continuing through the Israelites' journey um, in front of Mount Sinai and out of Egypt. So starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it, sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my, ba- my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joseph, uh, uh, Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you had brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up 
out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, that anyone, that any who have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have ordained, been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Lord, we come before you. Uh, We thank you for your mercy, your grace. We thank you that you are the perfect heavenly Father. Lord, I ask that you just help us right now focus on your word. Uh, Focus on understanding uh, the rebellion that exists in our own heart. As your, as your children here on earth, Lord. Let us, let us learn the lessons that you desire for us to learn, that my mouth only say the words that you desire to say, and that it be to your glory um, here this morning. In your name, amen. So, today's message has five steps that will take us through the passage and let us see the children of Israel's rebellious walk and see our own parallel walk with our Heavenly Father. Throughout each of these steps, we will make application to three types or categories of people that I want you to keep in mind throughout each of those five steps. We'll touch on each of these types of people throughout the message. The first type being the rebellious child. The second type being the obedient child. And then we'll make some direct application to the overseers and the leaders of the church. So step one in this walk is that rebellious children break the Father's covenant. Rebellious children break the Father's covenant. So in the text between verses 1 through 6, we see the rebellion by the children of Israel and the violation of God's newly sealed covenant through the breaking of the very first of the Ten Commandments, to have no other God before Him. Although shocking, right? It should also come as no surprise, since really all sin, all sin starts with placing something else between us and our perfect Heavenly Father. In this case, we see that the people in verse 1 got tired of waiting for Moses. But as you dig deeper, right, 
you see really the crux of this. In fact, that the children of Israel had, at least some, had placed Moses in the position of God, right? They got tired of waiting for Moses. They didn't know where he was. So somehow, because he wasn't there, they didn't have God in their presence. They didn't have something tangible in their presence. Their faith was misplaced. So from the previous chapters all the way back to chapter 24, we know that Moses right, had gone up for 40 days and 40 nights to speak to God on Mount Sinai. Here in chapter 32, though, just after sealing God's perfect covenant with his people through sacrifice and blood that we spoke about, that we talked about several weeks ago, you know, the people of Israel had, in fact, seen God's presence come down on Mount Sinai as a devouring fire. But the people at this point, they're like, you know, that was yesterday. What has God done for me recently? So they go to Aaron and demand that he make them gods that they can see now, right? They don't have Moses to look at and talk to. So set me up, right? Set me up something that I can actually see. What was Aaron's response? He caves in, right? And basically says, all right, let's make this happen. And what does he do? All right, give me your gold. And he creates this golden calf. And the people proclaim that these are their gods that brought them out of Egypt. So Aaron goes and makes an altar and says that there will be a feast to the Lord. And the next day, that's exactly what happens. They have a giant party and they celebrate these gods, plural, that brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery. So how ridiculous is this, right? Less than 40 days after sealing his covenant and the people promising all that the Lord says we will do. They basically willfully forgotten about God and need something more. 40 days after seeing his presence in that form of a devouring fire and promising to do what he commands. This is over and done with. How can the people of Israel be this short-sighted ignorant, rebellious, and just plain dumb. Well, it's almost as bad as having the all-powerful God of the universe, right, send his son down here on earth to die on a cross for yours and my sin, seeing a life-changing work in our own heart happen, professing to be his followers, and then willfully turning around and living however we please. So I go into church on Sunday, hearing the word, worshiping, taking part in communion, and then walking out the doors, right? And then engaging in our own self-gratification, our own desires. Like we are the God of our universe. So I think before we, we step back and we laugh and mock, right, the Israelites for being fo so foolish, let's understand that while we might not have... Uh, at least I haven't at this point asked for Ami's jewelry to go out, light up, you know, the barbecue, the fire pit, and throw it in and, you know, create this uh, golden calf. Um, every single one of us has set up idols in our own life. Every one of us, perhaps even now, right, are in the place of the rebellious child that says, yeah, God, you are great, but what have you done for me lately? I don't see you right in front of me right now. I need something more tangible to guide me. So it was interesting. I was driving into work on Thursday. I was skipping through the radio stations and I stopped on a country station. I've been known to listen to some country, but I haven't been listening to a lot of country music recently. So I don't really know whether the song that popped up was new or had been around for a while. 
But the lyrics caught my attention. Uh, let's take a look at some of these lyrics because there's a, a pretty interesting direct parallel to, what, to this passage. The lyrics said, I need Jesus or I need whiskey. Whatever gets works best to get me through getting over you. So just think about this message here, right? The guy's singing about hurting over some boss, and he turns to either Jesus or whiskey, right? Whichever one will get me, you know, over that immediate pain the quickest. Continuing on, what I need is a neon church with a jukebox choir full of honky-tonk angels with their wings on fire, straight pouring out that Johnny Walker healing. So he goes to the church, right? He walks into the church that he actually believes will do the job, the bar. Baptize me in that barroom smoke. Bartender, preach to me till my heart ain't broke no more. So instead of Christ cleansing and a profession of faith through baptism, through water, the representation of your faith, right? It's the poisonous smoke from a barroom that will profess his at where his actual faith lies. I tried bending the hands up praying, but that hurt just kept hanging around. So now he claims that he's, gone, he's tried going to the Lord. Lord, I tried, right? But God wasn't there, or he didn't care, or he really was powerless to help me in the moment in my timing. Just a sipping down that unholy water saved that hurt like hell for tomorrow. So now he's replaced the power of God's word with gratification in the moment. In a neon church with the party crowd when the good times roll and the music's loud. So now he parties. He, so he can drown out everything else and worship that tangible God that's right there for him in that moment. Now don't mistake this. this. This is not a rant against this song, against country music, or even whiskey. What it is is a rant against anything that we use to replace or supplement Christ. That's the point. And the parallels... It, with our scripture in Exodus are just too good to pass up. Instead of, right, the golden calf, it's whiskey and a party. But you can fill in the blank, right, with what that golden calf might be. It could be your family, your work, your hobby, a religious activity, or a thousand other things that you might be using to replace or supplement God's saving power. So maybe you're in the place of the rebellious child that has been going th with the flow for a while, fitting in with the rest of the kids, heading out from Egypt, keeping your head low, going through the motion when the spotlight's on, but when the going gets a little rough, right, your marriage is on the rocks, or you're bored because it doesn't seem that God's around, and given the opportunities, you grab others and go ahead and rebel to worship something else that gratifies you more in that moment. Because... Don't mistake it, everybody, everyone is worshiping something. Atheists or humanists worship humanity or creation or their own self. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping something else. Usually that something else being a form of your own desires for that self-gratification. So here, once again, we see the first step in this pattern in our walk with Christ. The Israel's breaking the covenant with God as a picture of all mankind breaking the same covenant, and particularly Christ's followers, his obedient children, his believers committing their lives to Christ's new covenant that we spoke about a few weeks ago, and then turning around and worshiping something else. So this rebellion and breaking of God's covenant leads us to step two. 
Step two is rebellious children deserve God's wrath. Rebellious children deserve God's wrath. In verses 7, really 7 through 10, God's righteous response is clear and it's swift. Up on the mountain, God knows of his children's treachery and commands Moses to go down and see the, how the Israelites have corrupted themselves by making an idol and worshiping it. Instead of, or as a supplement to the Lord, right? And placing them as the ones, these gods, these tangible gods, as those that actually brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Look at how the Lord points out how the children have perversely credited their own God, the all-powerful God, the Lord, with something replacing what the Lord did with these fake, these tangible, this golden calf as an image in front of the Lord. So how many times do we either intentionally or unintentionally do this? You know, whether it's someone asking us, okay, you seem like, you know, you have it all together, right? Your life is, your life is great. And you respond, yeah, I, I succeeded because I'm awesome. I just worked really hard. I prayed really hard. I did a whole lot of great things, and yeah, I did that. Well, God's response to this, and the, and the Israelites' replacement of him is clear. He tells Moses, Leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them to make a great nation out of Moses. So first of all, what do we see? We see that the wages of their sin is death. God has pulled them out of slavery. He saved them. He showed them his awesome power. And how do they repay him? Well, at this point, he's ready to wipe them off the face of the earth in a similar manner, right, to him wiping the people off in Noah's time. Now, what happens here? Moses pleads for God's mercy to spare God's children, which we will talk again about shortly in a little bit. But we also see that when Moses makes his way down the mountain and actually sees the, for himself the people violating God's covenant, he in turn becomes angered. And he actually, what does he do? He smashes the stone tablets that God has written on with his own finger, the commandments that show how the people are to fulfill God's covenant. Think about that. This is where we are in the journey of Israel's consecration, in the, of their sanctification. The people are so far off track that Moses has actually smashed out things, tangible items that God has actually written on. Once again, though, let's think about ourselves. This shouldn't be too hard to understand. In a tangible way, I can think of countless times, right, as a parent, I've thought, haven't I told my kids about 500 times to put that cap on the, uh, on the toothpaste when they're done brushing their teeth? I especially love in the, in the passage, right, where God says, Moses, go down for your people. Sounds a lot like someone I'm married to. Paul, guess what, uh, what the kids did today, right before explaining what it is they, uh, they did. I'm clearly not trying to draw a mirror image between God's righteous wrath and my own flawed, often flawed, unrighteous wrath. But I'm saying there's a parallel. But more importantly, the sin of his children, of God's children, elicited a need for God's wrath as a penalty for tearing up their covenant or God's covenant that the people had just promised to uphold. Once again, this is the same for you and for I. Our sin right now demands 
God's wrath. Only Christ's sacrifice on the cross perfectly atones for that wrath. Through God's grace, he provided a way for his children to receive salvation. And he uses our submissive faith that recognizes it is only through Christ's sacrifice and grace that allows our reconciliation so that we are not consumed by that wrath. So, let's move on to step three. What happens when the kids have broken the rules and deserve wrath? Well, step three is that rebellious children make excuses. Rebellious children make excuses. We can see these excuses start all the way back in verse 1, right? When Moses delayed and the people did not know what happened to him. And they start asking for other things to fulfill and replace God. We see their misplaced faith, which should have been in God's saving power, bringing the children out of Egypt. And they've assigned Moses in the place of God. Later in verses 21 through 24, Moses confronts Aaron. Another example, and says, what were you thinking? How did you let this happen? Surely they, and this is, you know, I apologize if this is, uh, you know, a little bit graphic, but this is what came to my mind. Like, surely they must have put a sawed-off shotgun to your head, Aaron, because there is no possible way otherwise that you would have done something this dumb and let, allowed the people to set up an idol to worship instead of God. And what is Aaron's response in verse 22? Don't be mad at me, uh, Moses. You know the people. You know these kids. They are set on being evil. They told me to make them gods. And they didn't know what happened to you. So they gave me their jewelry. I threw it in this fire and poof, how came this calf? It's not my fault. They wanted me to do it. I don't even have to, have to say it, right? You can fill in the blank. Kids, what happened here? And the response is what? She said something I didn't like, or he pinched me. Or, let's back up to Genesis. I didn't want to eat the fruit. The serpent or the woman gave it to me. There are excuses for everything, and excuses are the ready-made formula for you and I to deny the need for forgiveness for our sin. Because if we did something wrong, right, then we deserve God's wrath. We just spoke about that. But this is Satan's formula to convince you that you don't need Jesus' saving power on the cross. I'm not really that bad. I'm a basically a good person, right? If I did something bad, it wasn't even my fault. That person cut me off. That person made me feel bad about myself. They didn't respect me. I deserve, right? No, what you and I and all humans deserve is eternal death for our sin that was grafted into us from the very beginning. Speaking of which, really, this is one of the favorite rationales that people will attack God's message from the Bible, right? They'll say, how fair is it, right? The Bible says you were born into sin. How fair is it that everyone, that God has condemned you for what happened in the Garden of Eden? Then it goes, there's no way a holy and just God would condemn all mankind, right, to damnation because of original sin. Well, Folks, these are hard truths, but let's look at Romans 5 because I think it explains it best. You're welcome to turn there or you can just listen along. Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now skipping down to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The point is, right, that yes, sin entered the world through Adam and all have sinned and are condemned to death. But at the same time, Jesus provided the path to justification and life for all mankind. There's no excuse for any of us. We have all sinned. And we all need God's grace shown through His love through His Son on the, on the cross. No amount of excuses were going to get the children of Israel off the hook for their rebellion. And none can get us off the hook. No one can get us off the hook. Only Christ can. And Christ's perfect love for us demonstrated in the salvation that He extends to all who believe and place their faith in Him. So since excuses don't work, step four in our walk is that rebellious children are disciplined. Rebellious children are disciplined. The consequences for the children of Israel began immediately after Moses comes down from the mountain in verse 20. He immediately takes the idol, burns it, crushes it, scatters it in water, and then what does he do? He forces the people of Israel to drink the water. The mental image right here should provide you a great picture of the judgment that we all deserve for placing something before God in our lives. We deserve to be burned, crushed, and forced to drink poison water. This also provides a picture of the future for all idols, right? On Judgment Day, before a holy and perfect God, and for all that place their faith in anything but God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't fun to, to talk about, right? And it certainly doesn't equate to what well, one of my professors out in California, uh, would, how he would describe Jesus. He would describe Jesus as the hacky sack Jesus, right? The Jesus that is there to hang out with us, to be there for us, to be super cool. He loves you like a bro. He would never bring up judgment because that would be super uncool. Well, from the passage here and the rest of the scriptures, right, it's a lot worse than super uncool because in verses 25 through 29, Moses calls upon the people of Israel to take a stand, to make a decision whether or not they will stand with the Lord or not. The sons of Levi, we see, do. And then God, through Moses, calls on them to do what? To slaughter 3,000 fellow children of Israel, including their own sons, brothers, and neighbors. Definitely not the picture of the hacky sack, God, and Jesus. Then in verses 33 through 35, God says that whoever has sinned against them will be blotted out of his book and that their sin will be visited upon the people, including through a plague. Now the question comes up, right? 
is this blotting out of the Lamb's book of life? Or is it in the book of the covenant, the book of the roles of the people of Israel, like the list of actual people who were part of the nation of Israel? Well, there's a lot of commentary on this subject, but it's pretty clear that regardless of what book we are talking about specifically that, are, that is referenced throughout the Bible, all blotting is severe. From the total of Scripture, I believe it is clear that for those that, that were killed that day, that had never actually followed the Lord with their hearts, had never actually placed their faith and trust in Him, yes, when they were blotted out by the physical sword, they faced eternal separation and were in fact blotted out of the Lamb's book of life for all eternity. But is it also possible for those that may have trusted in the Lord, been pulled out astray out of temporary weakness, individuals perhaps like Aaron, though Aaron is not clearly uh, killed in this case, that they suffered a more physical blotting out and not a spiritual blotting? Well, it's possible, but it's not clearly stated from this single passage. What is clear is that God is sovereign, and it is never safe to play around with rebellion or placing idols or something between us and our relationship with God. That is perfectly clear. So as our perfect Heavenly Father disciplines His children, another stark contrast with the cultural norms in the United States that would have you believe that good parenting leaves right decisions up to the kids, right? or that it will damage their development or their self-esteem if a child is ever told no or is disciplined. Now, clearly there's a big difference between healthy, loving, loving, godly discipline and abuse, right? But we're not talking about abuse. What is clear is from the pattern in the scriptures is that parenting, godly parenting, requires firm and loving discipline to teach your children right from wrong. So... If you're ever looking for parenting instruction or, or guidance on right, how to raise your children, all you pretty much have to do is open up the Bible, right? Because God is our Heavenly Father, and we can see His relationship from, from both Him and to His Son Jesus and from God and Jesus to ourselves and the church as that picture of a parent and the relationship the godly relationship and pattern that is set out and how we are supposed to love and discipline our children. And you'll typically see that through that disciplining sinful children out of a perfect but firm love. So the consequences for us here today for putting something else in front of God are real and they're all around us. We're going to feel those consequences for our sins physically, right? If you turn to that neon church to wash your pain away, what can you expect to face? Especially coming from the Marine Corps side, and I think you'll see it all across culture, right? The physical consequences are very real and prevalent. You can face addiction, financial loss, broken relationships, loss of a job. But much more importantly, right, the spiritual discipline and consequences are far more severe. A non-existent relationship with God ultimately means being blotted out of the book of life and facing eternity without Christ in hell. So that's the harsh reality. But the good news here is, and what we can be eternally thankful for, is that even though we as rebellious children are fully deserving right, of God's wrath, that we make excuses, that we suffer consequences for our sin, 
right? Step five here this morning is that Christ intercedes and atones for rebellious children. Step five is that Christ intercedes and atones for rebellious children. In Exodus, just as God announces his wrathful plan, right, righteous and wrathful plan to consume Israel, Moses steps into the picture as a premonition of Christ as the intercessor for our sins. In verse 11, he says of Exodus 32, he implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Right? It's not as the, as the Israelites credit Moses that brought them out. It is God that has led them through this all the way. Verse 12, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself on your own power and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that have promised, that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord, what did he do? The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So what does Moses do here? He prays and pleads with God to relent. He rightfully reminds God that it is he, God, that brought Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage of slavery, and that he has swore on his own power to make them a great nation and take them into the promised land. Now, of course, right, God is not surprised by the people of Israel's action, nor is he surprised by Moses' response. But he is setting a pattern for us and for, for his people and for the, us as his believers here today as the direct spiritual children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is showing us that through the intercession of Christ on the cross that we are redeemed from sin. He is also showing us the power of prayer for us to intercede on others' behalf according to the will of God. James uh, chapter 5, uh, between verses 16 and 18, you can just listen as I, as I read. It says, starting in 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like, our, like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. Excuse me. That it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. So one of these, one of these amazing mysteries of God that I love so much is that somehow... And really beyond our own flawed human comprehension and beyond our pride that thinks we can figure out the mind of God, that God provides room for humans to act and carry out his will. And we see here, we see this here through, the, through prayer in line with God's will for his people's good and for his own glory. So direct application for us, right? One, we're to pray for one another. And two, we're to confess our sins to one another. Well, between the two, I think oftentimes we do a great job of praying for each other, of lifting each other up before God, right? Through community groups, here during the service, during our daily week. You know, we often do that pretty well, and we can do far better. But I think it's much harder for us to take that 
that next step of confessing our sins one to another. And it's difficult. Um, but I, I know within my own life, the times where I've seen really Christ work the most in my life is when I submit to this and I'm confessing my sins to all me. That I confess my sins to others that I've wronged. That I confess my sins to the leadership within the church. Um, to say, hey, you know, I, this needs to be out in the open. And through that, Christ has been able to work in just amazing ways in my own life. And I know in the life of many here, there are countless epically powerful examples of what happens when you confess your sin openly to others and allow Christ to work through others in your life. So, back to Exodus 32. In Exodus 30, uh, in verses 30 through 32, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves God, uh, gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Yet again, we see this picture of the rebellious children of Israel's need for a Savior that can atone for their sins. Moses cannot do so. But he represents, right, a picture of Christ, again, in going to the Heavenly Father, in confessing the people's sin, and begging for their forgiveness. And he even goes to the incredible point of being willing to sacrifice his own life to be blotted out as a sacrifice to assuage God's holy wrath. Right? So right now, based on, on Moses' action, I want to make one kind of specific uh, sub-point to the leadership, right? And to leadership of the church in general, right? Because it's a very weighty matter, right? And it's a good thing to desire to be a leader among God's church, right? But there's a heavy responsibility here. And let's think about the contrast in this passage between Aaron on one side and Moses. Both flawed human beings, but they give us two distinct versions of leadership, of church leadership. Remember, though, for Aaron, right, in the previous chapters, last week and the week before, Aaron's identified as one of these key leaders as a high priest to lead Israel in the worship to God. And he's done so, right? God does so. God directs this fully knowing what Aaron's about to do. So that, on that side, that gives us all hope, right, for leadership. That God, knowing how bad Aaron's about to mess up and still sees a purpose and a plan for him. But think about what Aaron has done here, right? Aaron is the leader of his flock that is left behind while Moses goes up the mountain. The people come to him, and Aaron facilitates and even leads his people in going into idol worship, direct idol worship. And then when confronted, he makes excuses and places the blame on the people. All right, what are the consequences for that? Well, it's not told right here immediately what the consequences for Aaron is, but in Matthew 5, 6, it says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Pretty weighty. Literally and figuratively, I guess. Now contrast that to Moses' example. Moses prays and pleads to God, right? 
pleads with him to relent from his wrath, okay? But he also leads the people directly through the hard process. He comes down, he confronts the people, he confronts Aaron, he does away immediately with the golden calf. That's gone. And then he calls on the people, right? Make the decision now. Are you with God or are you not? Okay? The, the sons of Levi, Levi step up and what does he do? He causes them, you know, God, he carries out God's will and causes them to cut out the sin the idolatry in their life as the people of Israel. That's the kind of leadership we need in church. Ones that actually lead, that draw the people to God and not go along with the will of whatever comes up at the moment. Now, I don't have to break it to you, but your leaders here just within Pillar Jacks uh, are flawed human beings that need Christ. All right? But we need to understand the weighty responsibility as a whole uh, for the leadership. And we need to lift up our leaders, hold them accountable, encourage them, right? Because it's hard for me to believe it's not stated here in the Bible. But it's just where my mind goes, right? When the people, some of the people came up to Aaron to say, build us an idol. How was there not people around Aaron saying, listen, Aaron, <laughs> this is the wrong idea. All right, it's not stated here, but there need to be people that also hold their leaders accountable and encourage them, right, to follow after God, not to follow what will please the people themselves, what will please God instead. All right, so we need to lift up our leaders to be focused, to have heart focused on Christ, on loving Christ and loving the people um, in the right way. All right. But ultimately, though, thank God, it's not all about the examples of leadership here on this earth, okay? Or back in Exodus, it's about what Christ did for us on the cross. He took the sins of the entire world of all time so that we do not have to die a spiritual death and face eternal separation from God. Back to Romans in 3, 23 through 26, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. From this portion in Romans, it's clear. The path is clear for us. We all fall short once again due to our sin that cuts us off from a relationship with our Heavenly Father. But our Heavenly Father redeemed us through the sacrifice of His Son on the cross through which he extends grace as a gift to those that submit and place their faith and their trust in his saving power. Therefore, through that power, we can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father and our sins are atoned for. So here today, right, we've seen our childish walk through life. Hopefully you've seen it as not just like the ridiculous things that the children of Israel did less than 40 days somewhere less than 40 days after they promised to God and his covenant was sealed to them through sacrifice and blood. We've seen the pattern of rebellion against God due to placing something between us and him. We see that rebellion deserves wrath. We see that as kids, we tend to want to make excuses to rationalize why we are not really guilty um, and why it's not our fault. Nevertheless, 
because it is our fault, consequences still happen. Both physical consequences as a direct result of our sin, but much more importantly, the spiritual consequences and the potential for spiritual separation for God for all eternity. But the good news, the good news for all of us is that our Father provided a way to life and reconciliation through His Son, Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf, who loved us so much that He didn't just offer like Moses did to, to atone, to be blotted out of the book. No, He actually was sacrificed and then through His own power rose from the dead to conquer death. So what can you do? What can we do today, having heard this? Well, one, we can have faith to receive God's gift. This is the faith to put Christ first, not to supplement Him with other props or idols, but to rest in Him alone. Um, our intelligence, our ability to reason, our ability to understand, our talents, pale in comparison to God's power. What will you do with this? Will you compartmentalize it? Will you rationalize it? Will you trust in yourself? Will you trust in other human understanding? Because it's all out there. Will you, trust, will you go to the neon church? Or will you relent and trust in God? Christ is the only path that aligns your purpose and desires in life with what truly matters to the creator of everything. Reconciliation and peace can only come through the, this relationship with Christ. We need to stop seeking to rebel against an all-powerful creator, and reconcile with Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, uh, we come to you. Lord, you see our rebellion. You see our sin, Lord. You see that we are like the children of Israel that hear, that promise to go out and do your will, but then break your covenant. We know that this rebellion deserves wrath, um, and we're thankful that even though we make excuses and that you discipline us, you discipline us out of love, Lord. Um, but Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, to wipe away our sins. And all we have to do is place our faith and trust in you um, to receive that free gift, Lord. Lord, I ask that those that are here this morning, um, those that have never trusted in you, have never placed their faith in you, have never made that commitment, that, Lord, they would go to one of, the, one of the members, one of the elders here today, and rectify that and reconcile with God to begin that very challenging growth um, in Christ, that process of sanctification. And, Lord, I ask that those of us that are here that continually and cyclically fall back into sin, that go back into rebellion oftentimes, just as children do, that we would turn away from that sin, turn away from that rebellion, that we would submit, that we would confess our sins uh, to you and to each other and follow through in submissive obedience. And lastly, Lord, I just I pray for the leadership, not just within this body of believers, but all across your universal church, Lord, um, that we would only lead in the way that you desire us to lead, Lord, and that we would point, um, point our families, our body, the body of believers, to your love and to your atonement. And we just thank you for who you are in your name. Amen.